0: we're in our fourth week of sermons on the gospel according to Joseph, and this morning I think I will refrain from going through lots of review, and I'm sorry to our visitors, but many of you know the story of Joseph, Um, and maybe after today you'll be encouraged to read even more of it and to go through those chapters in Genesis 37 through uh, chapter 50. Next week, we're going to conclude. And I have to tell you, I feel bad and sad. I've enjoyed uh, being here. I've enjoyed leading you in these messages. And by the way, uh, the the sermons that I preached in Zuni on the gospel according to Joseph took me two and a half months. And so you're getting a... Crash course, if you will. We're going to uh, look at a really pivotal moment in the life of Joseph, and we're going to look at the reunion between Joseph and his brothers, and what leads up to this. I talked to you about the pattern of the gospel. I think I shared a handout with you a couple of weeks ago. If you haven't gotten those, there are still some in the entrance way about the pattern of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this story of Joseph, how it's all opening up our eyes to the coming Savior. It's a story about the line of Jacob, the line of Judah, leading to the promised seed David, leading to the promised seed Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard uh, uh, philosophers talk about uh, proximate... Um, goals and purposes, remote purposes and ultimate purposes. Today, we're going to look at more proximate purposes. Let me let me explain this. This maybe this will help you understand a little better. Uh, the Detroit Lions. I, I, I don't know why you laugh. I I'm lying. Um, a proximate goal for the Detroit Lions is to make a first down. A more remote goal would be to get a touchdown. An even more remote goal would be to win a game. And the ultimate goal would be to win the Super Bowl. Maybe on my deathbed. <laughs> Okay, last week we looked at one of the ultimate purposes. We didn't talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ, but we saw a big picture, a panoramic view of this story of Joseph and how it really encompasses the gospel of Jesus Christ and the coming of the one we call Savior and Lord. Great big picture. Uh, The promised seed we talked about last week. But now we're going to narrow it down and we're going to look at how that gospel plays itself out every single day. Until the Lord returns, we're talking about a gospel of reconciliation. We're talking about a gospel of forgiveness that helps us realize there is an ultimate goal, and that goal is to be with the Lord forever. Before we read... Um, I've got to just tell you a, a little story, um, and maybe I've shared this with some of you before. Forgive me if you're hearing it again, but uh, some of you may know that uh, uh, Max Balser and I went hunting some years ago. We were deer hunting up here in northern Michigan. I don't know where we where we were at. He does. And uh, a, a large buck stepped out a hundred yards away, and both of us picked up our guns simultaneously and shot. And the first thing Max says is, I got it. (laughs) And I said, no, (laughs) I got it. And then he said, you know what kind of a shot I am, I got it. And we argued for a while, it was a nice buck. A DNR officer, this is the second week you get to talk about DNR, right? A DNR happens to show up. A, an officer shows up, walks over to the buck, lifts up its head, looks at it, it looks at us and, and yells out, is one of you a preacher? And I said, I am. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, it's your buck because the bullet went in one ear and out the other. (laughs) See, Max, that wasn't so bad. But I promised you several weeks ago I was going to get back at you. No, I trust that that's not going to happen uh, this morning. Uh, I've really been grateful uh, for how attentive you have been to this story. It certainly hasn't been a matter of letting the gospel come in one ear and and go out the other. Uh, Would you look with me at uh, Genesis chapter 44? And we're going to look at a few verses there and then we're going to look at Genesis 45. Uh, As I said last week, Joseph was on an emotional roller coaster he spoke harshly when he met with his brothers and then he would his heart would be stirred with his love for these guys and yet mixed with just maybe some resentment toward these guys for what they had done they had treated him so harshly i mean they stripped this coat off from him like field dressing a deer they threw his body into a grave uh, and they abandoned him, and they, they heard him screaming. We learn later, they heard him crying out, Why have you forsaken me? These, uh, these brothers had to live with that for 20 years. And 20 years is a long time to have to live with a secret sin. And every time... Someone mentioned Egypt. They, they may have thought about their brother. Is he still alive? Every time they looked at their, uh, their dad, Jacob, they, they saw some resemblance of Joseph. They remembered. And, and, and it's on their heart. Guilt is the Muhammad Ali of all emotions. It comes at us with both fists. Uh, the left hook of shouldn't, the right hook of couldn't, I should have done better. I could have done more. We do our best to fight back. But if God is at work lovingly in our hearts, he will have his way. And one day, that guilt will have to be dealt with. Judah speaks on behalf of his brothers. Now he is showing signs of the one who had come, the promised seed. He is standing in the place of his brother Benjamin, when Joseph said, I want you to go back, and I want you to bring your younger brother, not revealing who he is uh, to his ten brothers. He says, I want you to go back and bring your youngest brother. I want you to bring him here. And you know, they went back to Dad and, and, and Jacob said, This is going to kill me. You know, I've lost my wife. I've lost Joseph. Now I'm going to lose Benjamin. And Judah heard that. Something is stirring in this man's soul. These guys were on the path to becoming terrible people. I mean, they they, they were guys that walked away from that pit, and they were ruthless, without hearts. They walked away. How in the world could they know that God had ultimate purposes in this? How in the world could they know anything good could come from it? Now Judah, notice, as the representative head. Remember that. That's so important. Because what we find in Jesus Christ is our representative head. In him we are saved. In Judah now, speaking on behalf of the other brothers, says, We've sinned. Our guilt has found us. These guys are looking at each other and they're going, I think God has finally caught up with us. And Judah looks at Joseph and says, these are the words of substitutionary atonement. Look with me at uh, uh, verse 16 of 44 and then we're going to jump to verse 30. He says, what can we say to my Lord? Judah replied, What can we say? How can we prove our innocence regarding the silver cup that was placed in uh, Benjamin's saddlebag? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who uh, was found to have the cup. Verse 30. So now, if the boy, that's Benjamin, is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father... And if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. He's becoming human. He's becoming a a man with a heart. Something is changing in Judah. Your servant is guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, uh, my, uh, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Substitution. Those are the words of a covenant representative. Those are the words of a true Israelite. We've seen it in Joseph up to this point. He is the one who's representing Yahweh to the world. And wherever he goes, people prosper as a humble servant, not as one who's climbing uh, the materialistic uh, dreams of power and health and wealth and prosperity. He gets that, but that's not the point of the story. We're looking at Israel representing God and now Judah, of all people, read chapter 38 once and find out if, if, uh, if Judah at that point looks like a real good representative of God. Remember the name Tamar. Well, now Judah says, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. Chapter 45. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. Now I read between the lines here. This is the third time in this story that Joseph weeps. Seven times he weeps in this story. I read between the lines, and I don't know how this ever happened, but whenever I feel a weeping spell come on, I got to get away from people. And then I got to splash water in my face. And they'll say, What was wrong with you? And I said, I just went swimming. Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there's been a famine in the land, and for the next five years there will not be plowing and reaping, But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a ultimate purpose, a great deliverance, which would mean they would survive the famine. But more than that, Jesus Christ would come. This is the word of our Lord. I haven't shared very many stories of Zuni with you, if any, maybe a couple. But I I want to share a story of a man who entered our sanctuary a couple of years ago. He was sitting in the back row. I recognized him and I looked. Smiled After church, we spoke briefly. And I had met him 25 years ago in the Zuni jail. Had a ministry in the jail and presented the gospel. Sometimes we'd sit in the drunk tank. Guys were uh, trying to get sober. And that's where I had my Bible study. But I have to tell you, Uh, in all my years of ministry, I have never experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit like I did in that jail. Uh, These were guys that were hungry for the gospel. And uh, this young man, he was young at the time, had just beaten up his girlfriend, kicked around his children, went out on a drunken rage, just looking for people that he could beat up, and he did it. He ended up in jail and he had a boatload of guilt on his heart. And at the end of that Bible study, I said that the Lord, and I didn't know what he had done. I just, I could only surmise looking out at the group that I was ministering to, black eyes, swollen faces, gaunt, ugly. I said, you know, whatever you've done, no matter what got you into this jail, Jesus Christ will take that sin, that darkness, that unrighteousness upon himself, and this perfect Lamb of God, who went to the cross for your sin, will give you his perfect righteousness. I said, what an exchange. What a deal. But you have to pray and ask God to forgive you, because what you did was sin. A seed of the gospel was planted in that man. 25 years later, he shows up in the Zuni church and he has been worshiping there every Sunday for the last two years. Another young man, he's not young anymore. I was preaching to the chairs. Uh, as Brandon Vanderslick will tell you, he knows I preach to chairs. Uh, I was preaching to the chairs one Sunday morning and I saw a guy coming through the door, walked over to the school showers, and he took a shower and then he left. following week, I saw him standing in the hallway listening as I preached. Eventually, he showed up at the back door. Then a couple Sundays later, he sat in the back row and a year or two later was baptized. This young man... Had done a grievous sin. So vile, it's hard to talk about. He believed that to come to church would only mean he'd get scrutinized, it mean that he'd get castigated and thrown down and, and, and uh, cast before the pigs uh, because he deserved it. That man committed his life to Jesus Christ walked boldly into the presence of God and had every sin forgiven, and he knows it. He knows it. And he feels it. He's appropriated that in his heart. The gospel has changed him. How many of you have a sin that just keeps recurring, it keeps coming back, because guilt is like a troll under the bridge? Keep wanting, wanting to rub our noses in a sin from the past. Um, I have a sin, and I, can't, I, I have such a hard time letting go of it. I was probably eight or nine years old. No, I was more like 12 years old. Uh, my, grandpa, my grandma had died. My grandpa, Mikoff, was very lonely. He'd come to church uh, with us in Granville, Michigan. I was the oldest. I had to sit next to grandpa, and I was ashamed of grandpa. I loved him, but I was ashamed of him. He lived in poverty. His, I didn't like his clothing. I didn't like the way he smelled. And I didn't like the way he held the songbook so close to his eyes. And I remember I would push that away. And when he died, I was overwhelmed with a sense of grief and guilt for what I had done to my grandpa. I tell you, I can't wait to see grandpa. I can't wait to see him. God has forgiven me that sin over and over again. But I had treated this godly man with such indignity that I could not look myself in the mirror after I had thought about what I had done. I share these stories with you because this is real stuff. These disciples, or these brothers, these guys on whom the foundation of the church would be built are terrible people. They're overcome with anger They hated their brother. They heard his screams. And now for 20 years, God has been ministering to them. God has been faithful at work. God has not abandoned them. But notice that one of the first things that God does is he awakens them through affliction. Dad Jacob says, why are you guys looking at each other? He mentions Egypt. You know why they're looking at each other. You know the memory that came back when they thought of Egypt, that their brother would be out there working with these slave crews, putting up these uh, monstrous uh, uh, effigies, working in the fields like a common slave. These guys were overcome with guilt. God is now awakening them through affliction. And I'll tell you, I I cannot help but thinking of Hebrews chapter 12. I think Joseph and his brothers is a case study for Hebrews chapter 12. And I never liked this verse until maybe recent years. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord the Lord is now a father to these guys like no father they have ever had. Because Jacob was a poor father. Now God comes in, and he says, Don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor lose courage when you are reproved by him. God is treating you as children. If you're left without discipline, you're orphans. All the discipline for the moment seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Our fathers disciplined us for a short time, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Isn't that that the key? That God is preparing us to be in his presence forever, sanctifying work of God's holiness, and it takes place in affliction. You see, when the grass is green, and the sheep are well-fed. Your conscience just kind of goes to sleep. But when the grass turns dry and the sheep are dying and you hear your children at night, Daddy, I'm hungry. You start asking the question, why? These ancient people had a, a direct connection with understanding that the divine is the one who provided the rain. The one who brought the crops. Now we have gotten so far from it, we just say it's strictly science. There is science behind it. But God's behind the science. He's sovereign over it. And these guys are now asking questions. Has God finally caught up with us? What's going on? The memory's back. And their memory is in the pit where they put Joseph. Reuben replies, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. We must now give account for his blood. Someone's got to pay for this sin, and we're going to pay. But they get to Joseph, and God awakens them with kindness. The brothers are having a wake-up call. He follows up the time of affliction and adversity with a time of kindness. Look at, look at the good things that Joseph does. As you've been reading this story, you'll know that Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain. En route to the land of Canaan, they look inside their saddlebags and find not only grain, but money their money, their silver that they had used to buy the grain. There's an irony here, because they had sold their brother into slavery for silver, but now they are given silver back. This is crazy. This is how my mind works. But you know, I find them making their way to Egypt looking like the Beverly Hillbillies. Go figure, that's how I think. Twice they go back to the land of Canaan And they're driving Ford F-350s. The Texas edition. edition, Texas edition. Is that right? Yeah. Pulling 30-foot trailers filled with goods as they drive back into Canaan. And Jacob and the family are going, whoa, what happened? Again, not a materialistic vision. It's just now Joseph in this place of power in this place, as an administrator, he is providing for his family, and it is kindness. And then, the coincidences. He takes this family, when Benjamin comes, and he seats them in the order of their age, and again, they're looking at each other, and they're going, what's happening? How can this be? And then he looks at, you know, I, I, when I preach this in Zuni, We've got a a place right across the street called Holona Plaza. They have sauna burgers, sita burgers, and dachu burgers. The saunas are for little kids, the sitas are for mothers, and the dachus are for dads. They're double beef. So there sit all of the brothers eating sauna burgers, except Benjamin. He's got five dachu burgers and the biggest chocolate shake that you can find... And the brothers are going, what on earth? Joseph is treating them with kindness and with love. And all of this is taking place because God is at work. He's at work in them. Here they are in the second year of the famine, and they show up on Joseph's doorstep needing some food. The brothers who threw him into the pit didn't recognize Joseph but immediately, he recognizes them. And now they're receiving love. And they're receiving kindness. And these ten guys are off balance. Guilty people are always off balance. How is, the question is, how are the brothers going to become the foundation of God's people in the world? God disciplines them and he cares for them and their hearts are beginning to soften. God's kindness begins to work on them. God is in the business of awakening and restoring us. He even works in the details of our disobedience, rebellion, and hard-heartedness to bring us back to him. Why? Because he's angry? No. God disciplines us for our good and these brothers are led to humility and repentance. With the confession of Judah, the heart of Joseph begins to melt. And I want to show you now what Joseph did in response to the confession of Judah. He wept for them. He wept. Do you remember when Jesus delayed four days His dear friend, Lazarus, died. He's in the grave. Mary and Martha are wondering, Jesus, why didn't you come sooner? And Jesus is looking at all of the grief and the pain for which he came to die. He saw it. It was all there graphically before him. His friends are crying. They're in grief. Lazarus is in the grave. And in verse 33 of John chapter 11, The Greek says that Jesus heaved like a stallion. He mourned, he heaved, he cried because of what death had done. The horrible thought that that death and the devil would win. Oh no. And then of course the only verse that I ever learned by heart when I was a kid, verse 35, Jesus wept. And that's when he quietly cried. He wept we find the crying of Joseph over the sins of his brothers but also crying that they are back. And what would it take for them to come back? Anger and love had dueled it out in Joseph's heart and love won. And he broke the news, he says, and we've been waiting for him to say this, I am Joseph. Is dad still alive? And I'm imagining these 11 brothers bowing down with their faces on the ground, and I've said this the last couple of weeks. They couldn't bow before Joseph in the land of promise. In Egypt, they can't stop bowing. And while they're down on their knees, they're looking at each other, casting glances at each other. And they're wondering, is this a trick? But if this is a trick, how did he know Benjamin's name? Finally, they lift their their eyes and venture a glance and there is their brother with his face buried in his hands. He's still crying. And after a while, Joseph looks up from his hands with tear-stained face and he calls out to them, don't miss this, he says, come close to me. I'm your brother. I want you to be with me. And I want to be with you. Does that ring a bell? Come to me, you who are weary, and I'll give you rest. We see the representative of Israel here in Joseph reminding us that Jesus Christ is not far off. And then there's this wonderful word in the Hebrew language. It's a term of intimacy, intimacy. It's the same word a mom or a dad would use to to say, come here, son, come here, daughter. Joseph wants his brothers so close that he can touch them. And as they're coming, Joseph tells them not to be afraid. Come to me. Approach my throne with confidence. Don't beat up on yourself. He called for them to draw near to his throne and he wept for them. And then look what Joseph did. Chapter 45, verses 10 through 11. Go fetch your family and come to Egypt. I'll give you the best of the land of Egypt and you'll eat from the fat of the land. He didn't just guarantee them three square meals a day and a roof over their heads. He promised them the finest provisions in the land of Egypt. And he sealed it with the promise of his tears. He kissed all of his brothers. He wept for his brothers. It was an amazing scene. And you'll note that Joseph excluded no one. Joseph went on one by one to all of his brothers who helped tie his hands and threw them into the pit and he embraced them. And I tell you, Joseph is really epitomizing what he said when he named his son Manasseh. I let that go. Jesus said if... I forgive you, and you're my children. You need to forgive others. It's the heart of the gospel that we need to forgive, that we don't hold grudges, so that others will know that we are Christians by the love of Jesus Christ. What an amazing thing Joseph is doing here. Then the scripture says he talked with them. I love this. He didn't talk over them. He didn't talk at them. He talked with them. Like, how's dad? Is he healthy? Simeon, did you ever get married? Reuben, for a man who's had to deal with two years of famine, you sure look chubby. How many children do you have? He talked to them, a scene of intimacy. The sons of Jacob finally reconciling their differences and coming together. And I'm thinking that at this point, the brothers begin to realize that they're out of danger, the famine is still a threat. But they were safe. They discovered that the powerful prince who sat upon the throne of Egypt was their brother. Now, I know we don't like to talk about this so much. Maybe it's new language to us. But did you know that the prince of heaven is your brother and he invites you to call him your brother? Jesus Christ. He's still Lord I said to the Zuni congregation a couple of years ago when I preached this, you could use that kind of discovery. I'm looking at people who know the taste of famine. You know the feeling of no resources. You've run out. Maybe not of food. And then I had to qualify that and say, maybe you have, because some had. But at least you've run out of energy, you've run out of answers to questions, you've run out of strength, you stood where Joseph's, brothers stood and maybe you did what joseph's brothers did you didn't sell anyone to slavery but you've hurt someone you've done you've done things you've regretted and we've all come to the prince not the prince of egypt but, but to the prince of heaven wondering if there would be acceptance in his eyes We've come seeking forgiveness. We've come seeking mercy. We've come seeking help. And we've come, found that Joseph's brothers, and we have found what Joseph's brothers have found, and that is when we come to the prince of heaven, we find not just a, a prince, but we find a brother and someone who's not ashamed of us. This is very biblical. Hebrews 2.11 says, Jesus is not a call, ashamed to call us brothers or sisters. The brotherhood of the redeemed with the Redeemer. We are truly one with him. Luke chapter 15, I am convinced that the elder brother, the one who would not accept the prodigal son in the Jewish tradition, that elder brother, would be the one who would first run out on behalf of the father, on behalf of the family, to find the lost prodigal. He didn't do it. But Jesus did. Jesus is the true elder brother, the true promised seed. And wouldn't you like to have a brother to watch you over you every day of your life? Someone who could walk on water. Someone who could feed multitudes. Someone who could look at you with eyes of compassion and know everything you've ever done and still embrace you to watch over you from the living room to the emergency room, from the fears to the frustrations. You'd like to have a brother to watch over you every turn of the journey. Next week, we're going to have our final sermon on Joseph. Jacob and Joseph were forced into a season of separation that lasted over 20 years. They were not allowed to say goodbye. Jacob assumed that he'd never see his son again for 20 years. They lived under, under the shadow of separation. But as I said last week, on heaven's calendar, God circled a date reunion of Jacob with his son. That great reunion day is on God's calendar. That's the heart of our God. That's the heart of our Lord and Savior. These are one of his ultimate purposes. Jesus said, I want you to be with me. And he's not like Tom Baudet who says, I'm going to leave the light on for you. Come and visit Motel 6. I'll be there once in a while. I'll show up, see if you're getting fed, getting a good night's sleep. No, Jesus said, I will be there. It's home, and you will live with me forever. This is the gospel, people. Jesus weeps for you. He calls for you and promises rest, and then He cares for you. But this is the most important question of your life. Will you accept the offer that Jesus, your brother, gives you? Will you draw near to Him? Will you receive His forgiveness? He weeps for you. He calls for you. He'll care for you and shower you with his blessings. Your response response is to draw near to him, step in his direction. You say, How do I do that? You know what? It's not as complicated as you think. It's as simple as A, B, C. Admit you're a sinner and you need a savior. You can't save yourself, but Jesus can. Make sure you understand the difference between the rescue that many Christians are saying Jesus offers today. Jesus is not offering just the, save, the salvation of therapy. That's what a lot of people think, that Jesus is just a, a bellhop or a therapist. He's a savior, he's a savior from. F- from sin. We take communion and he's removed that sin as far from us as the east is from the west. It's no longer ours because it became his. And our response is to be committed to him. The brothers of Joseph believed Joseph. They believed him. We need to believe Jesus. Admit you're a sinner. Be, believe what the Bible says about Jesus. That he died on the cross to take upon himself the wrath of God. And then see, commit. You commit with your tongue, you confess. You commit by demonstrating your faith, faith, you are baptized. And then you commit with your life to follow him. And you realize that he was the only person to be crucified, buried, and rose again to tell about it. And that's the person we're following. So I'd like to close by leading us in a prayer of confession. This may be a prayer similar to a prayer you've prayed many times, but for some of you, this may be your first prayer. This may be a new day in your heart in which you are calling Jesus to be your Lord and Savior and your brother. Would you pray with me? God, you are my refuge. You are my fortress. You're my safe place. I draw near to your throne. I admit my sin. Like Judah, I confess, you have uncovered your servant's guilt. Now I am casting my sin, my brokenness, my sorrows at your feet. And I want the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I want Jesus as my Savior. I believe that he's the Son of God who came to bear the sins of the world. I want you to remind me, Holy Spirit, daily to wear the coat of approval. The coat the Father gave the prodigal son coat that Jacob gave his son Joseph, the coat of approval, the coat of the Father. Help me to wear it daily and remember that nothing will ever separate me from your love. I commit to you my heart and my soul. From here on, I want to live for you in gratitude and I want my life to be living evidence that Jesus Christ lives in me. Amen.